Hello, and welcome to Notes on History, a podcast by a historian who really has no idea how to make a podcast. I'm your host, Paul Stetzel. This is the first installment of Notes on History, and I'm going to open this podcast series with a two-part discussion about the founding of Rome. Not the fall of Rome, which gets all the attention, but the founding of Rome. Now, why would I emphasize this? Well, besides the fact that it is illustrative of a particular concept I want to discuss, which I mentioned at the end of the introduction recording, there is an interesting phenomena here. Next time you're at your local library, find the section on Roman history. At my local library, I found a mixture of general Roman studies, a number of books on Caesar, who I hate, by the way, a volume or two on the seedier aspects of Roman life, because why have libraries if you can't go there for the thinly veiled pornography? There was a mountain of material on why the Roman Empire fell, and according to the catalog, one, count them one, ebook on the Roman monarchy. Now, why is that? The lion's share of books that discuss the fall of the empire represent the single greatest controversy in traditional historical circles. It's no wonder a lot of historians attempt to address the topic, and eventually Notes on History will have a look at it as well. It's a great topic. So is Caesar, the jackass, and yes, sometime in the future we'll examine him too, along with all of his jackassery. The books on the shady side of the Romans? Well, that's a no-brainer. Historians are very much like anyone else. Sometimes we'd much rather watch Netflix's reality TV offerings than C-SPAN 3's coverage of the rock'em sock'em world of Canadian Parliament, who doesn't get a giggle out of pictures of the Roman spas at Pompeii, after all. But why does no one cover the founding of Rome? If you want material that can't be taught in public schools, well, let me tell you, the rape of the Sabines is as tawdry a topic as it sounds, and Reyes Silvia's inappropriate relationship with the quote-unquote god of war raises all sorts of eyebrows. Romulus should be as cinematic a character as Caesar, and if you want controversy, well, the founding of Rome is full of questions and very lacking in answers. So why does no one cover this? Well, the answer to that is really very simple. Historians like to have material to work with. It just makes life easier. A historian who specializes in the American Civil War has this, this endless supply of written and physical material to work with. Go to the section in your library on that topic. It seems like historians can't not get published no matter what unmitigated crap they put to paper. But when it comes to early Roman history, there's a problem. At the beginning of the 4th century BC, a few hundred years after the founding, the Gauls came a-knocking at Rome's door, and one sacked city and a hell of a bonfire later, all of the records of the city had been lost, and the Romans had to rewrite what they could remember. Uh, and as a side note, by the way, I think this would make an interesting experiment. How accurate would regular people remember history if they had no references? In other words, if you took a random group of people uh, out at the mall and put them in a room and took away their cell phones, and you asked them to uh, write a history of America, what would that history look like? Anyway, this makes any history of Rome immediately suspect. We have to match it against archaeology and any number of other disciplines. Unfortunately, there's a pretty big town sitting on top of those ruins, so getting corroborating witnesses from among the archaeologists can be tough sometimes. And so we have to do something that historians hate to do. We have to apply a rule to early Roman history knowing that we're going to get some of the details wrong. That rule is this. 
we have to take the ancient historians at their word so long as that word is reasonable. Where evidence from archaeologists or other disciplines contradicts the ancients, we go with what we can prove. But what we can't disprove, we will approve, at least until something better comes along. Now, repeating unsubstantiated rumors isn't something real historians approve of. It's something we're very, very good at, but it's not something we would admit to in public. So what makes it okay in cases like this? Well, I'll make that clear by the end of this recording. There are actually a great many versions of the founding story. Uh, Dionysus of Halicarnassus, Book 1, Chapter 73, actually lists out a whole long line of ancient historians that he was aware of who all told different versions. Cephalon of Gurgis, Demagoras, Agathilus, uh, Damastes of Sigu, Aristotle, Callias, Xenagoras, Dionysus of Chalcis, yada yada yada. What's interesting here is that most of the writers he mentions were Greek. Most agree that there was some sort of migration of Hellenized or Greek peoples from the east to the Italian peninsula, and some of them even indicate that a town existed on the site long before the city that we are interested in. And of all these writers, we care about precisely none of them. What I'm interested in here are the writings of two historians who I haven't mentioned yet, and I'll explain why by the end. We're going to look at Plutarch, a Roman citizen of Greek origin who lived in what we call the Principate era of Roman history, and Titus Livius, or Livy, a Roman who lived in equally interesting times during the transition from the Republican to the Principate eras. Uh, for those of you not well versed in this stuff, that means around the time the Republic fell and the Empire began, or the end of Episode 3 for you Star Wars fans. For this narrative, we'll loosely follow Livy's chronology. We'll compare it to Plutarch, who wrote history in the form of a series of biographies, and we'll explore it with a good dose of commentary and analysis. Prior to the actual founding of Rome, Livy relays essentially the same story that Plutarch does in his Life of Romulus. In short, the migration of Trojans to Italy and their subsequent intermingling with the Italians, ulala, resulted in the founding of a great city, but it wasn't Rome. It was a town called Alba Longa. Uh, for the geographically inclined, this town was probably where the papal residence at Castel Gandolfo now sits. It's about a dozen miles south or southeast of Rome. Uh, now, the Trojan part of this is especially important for historians who believe that the story is entirely made up by later Romans, since Hellenized culture was highly prized by the later Romans, and any chance to tie their origins to the ancient Greek world would have been welcome. Anyhow, after many generations, power in Alba Longa descended from the original quote-unquote Trojans to a man named Proca, whose death would split his inheritance between two sons, Numitor and Amulius. Now, after several hundred years of direct succession, we can assume that this sort of situation had happened before, and that the Albans had a solution worked out, and we can even assume that the solution was the one applied here, that one of the inheritors would take political power in the city, while the other would inherit all the wealth. Numitor took the power, meaning he assumed Proca's leadership role in the city, and Amulius took the money, which is to say Numitor was a chump and Amulius wasn't. Amulius very quickly used his money to deprive his brother of his kingdom. Now, anyone who has ever read Shakespeare knows that Amulius now had a problem on his hands. He had just deposed his own brother and needed to tie up some loose ends. He did away with Numitor's sons, they presumably died in terribly suspicious circumstances, and he locked up Numitor's daughter, 
Rhea Sylvia. He didn't have her killed. Instead, he made her a Vestal Virgin. This was a very important religious position to the Romans and other peoples of the ancient world. And since being a Vestal Virgin meant you couldn't have sex, as the phrase virgin might imply to those of you who still own dictionaries, the likelihood of her producing heirs who might come back and haunt Amulius years on down the road were minimal. So why bother killing her? Unlike any good supervillain, he knew that there's no need to just shoot James Bond when you can simply get rid of him through some long, drawn-out Rube Goldberg machine that is sure to kill the good guy after the villain leaves the room. We can simply tell this young, independent-minded girl not to have sex. That's the, birth, that's the best birth control there is, right? I mean, does Planned Parenthood know about this? Come on. I have to wonder how shocked Amulius was when this girl showed up pregnant one day, and even after he told her to cut back on guys for a while. He might have been surprised, come to think of it, since he was also the kind of guy who would believe her when she said her beau had actually been a rapist by the name of Mars. What a coincidence, Amulius says. We have a god of war by that name. Now, that obviously seems like a tall tale to us today, but Amulius might have believed it. He might not have. It really doesn't matter. In either case, when the um, <coughs> virgin gave birth to twin boys, Amulius ordered that they be cast into the Tiber, Moses style. The man given the charge of disposing of the boys, whose uh, name was Faustulus, placed them in a trough, intending to dump them in the river. Finding the river flooding, he dared not go too near it, and instead left the boys in the bank near the river. That's the same thing, right? Well, close enough. If any of you have ever seen the Emperor's new groove, it's Kronk. Faustula seems to be Kronk. For now, at least, he'll redeem himself in just a moment. The waters eventually picked up the boys and carried them safely downstream. As the story goes, the boys landed on a riverbank safe and sound and were nurtured by a wolf and a woodpecker. The symbolism of the boys having been raised in such rustic circumstances would have been significant to the Romans, even if some of the finer points are lost on us today. Now, did the Romans actually believe that the wolf offered these two human babies a refreshing drink of leche de lupe? Probably not. And more importantly for us, they didn't actually have to believe it. Fortunately, Plutarch suggests an explanation that sounds quite a bit better to the modern reader and also saves us the trouble of infantilizing people of the past by assuming that they were all superstitious idiots. He says that the Latins referred to wolves as lupe, that, that's the, the Latin word, and that this was also the word that, for what he politely called a woman of loose life. It was a slang term. Faustulus, our very own baby boy bearer, was married to just such a woman, Acca Laurentia, to whom the Romans still offer sacrifices in Plutarch's days. Faustulus and his wife raised the children in secret, possibly with the surreptitious assistance of Numitor, who was also still inexplicably alive. I gotta tell you, Amulius would have made a terrible gangster. We can guess that Numitor had something to do with their upbringing, since the boys, named Romulus and Remus, were well-educated, apparently well beyond the means of a prostitute-wedded errand boy. The boys had all the traits that the Romans found admirable, but Romulus was the clear favorite from the beginning of the myth. Plutarch said of him, quote, He seemed to act by counsel and to show the sagacity of a statesman, and in all his dealings with their neighbors, whether related to feeding or flocks or to hunting, gave the idea of being born to rule rather than to obey. The brothers became popular among their peers and comrades, but in the first sign of the class struggle that would dominate much of Roman history, 
the servants and other members of the lower classes were somehow not impressed with their devotion to justice and good government. We'll see in part two of this discussion why I don't really believe that, by the way. The boy's true identity was revealed the same way celebrities today often augment their fame and find new ways to invade our news feeds, an altercation with the law. Of course, back then, this took the form of some kind of confusion over a herd of cattle rather than drunk driving-inspired accidental nudity. Remus and Faustulus ended up being hauled before Amulius, who very quickly figured out who the younger man was. Apparently, Amulius wasn't a complete idiot. While he was doing this figuring, Romulus shows up with a mob of protesters who want Remus released. This is sort of akin to the groups of free so-and-so demonstrators that hang out around the doors of modern courthouses whenever a celebrity is inside. Except this mob got too rowdy, murdered the judge, who in this case was Amulius. With Amulius gone, Numitor was put back into power. Presumably, presumably he was given all his father's money, and the brothers Romulus and Remus leave town. Well, now, why would they pack up their bags? That's a good question. They've just been at the center of an unexpected coup. They're popular, and one of them led a spontaneous army of protesters to victory against a tyrant. Now, there's a community organizer for you. Well, Plutarch says it was because they had developed a taste for leadership, but they didn't want to live in Alba Longa if they could not govern it. They, they certainly did not want to unseat Numitor, who we are led to believe was a really nice guy. So they leave Abalonga along with that group of rowdy protesters and return to what Plutarch tells us was the place of their upbringing and where they created a new settlement. The founding of the city was a point of contention between the brothers. Who knew? Well, while it had been decided that the city would be in the area of their upbringing, the exact spot was a matter of opinion. Romulus wanted the town to be started on what would become the Palatine Hill. Remus wanted the Aventine. It's a pretty simple A or B kind of question. So they did what any fair-minded pair of twin brothers would do. Did they toss a coin? Of course not. They weren't using coins back then. Did they use straws? You know, draw to see who had the, the short straw, the long straw? No, 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 no. They agreed that they would make the decision according to the tried and true, scientifically valid process of the divination of birds. By the way, I'm not making this up. In the absence of another couple of thousand years of scientific discovery, divination was, to the ancients, a very real and serious process. It doesn't make much sense to us today, but the Romans wouldn't have had a problem with the idea. The two brothers were separated some distance and observed the same group of birds in flight. Remus, who was a chump, says, I saw six vultures. Romulus says, oh, well, I saw six, I saw twelve vultures. Clearly, the gods are telling us that I am correct. Now, Remus couldn't quite shake the feeling that maybe Romulus had told a fib, and not surprisingly, he became a little jaded. So one day, Romulus was out and about outlining the shape of the city by building a small wall or ditch. It's, it's actually, this is really important, this is a, a very symbolic moment that occurred at the founding of any settlement of the day where you... You draw an outline on the ground by plowing uh, a ditch and then putting all the upturned earth off to one side to form a low wall. Anyway, Remus, feeling a little put out, starts mocking his brother and his ditch. Ooh, look at this Grand Canyon of ditches. I bet this will keep out all sorts of ruffians. And he starts jumping back and forth over the ditch. If any of you have ever seen Dave Chappelle in Robin Hood Men in Tights, you can picture in your head exactly what he must have looked like. 
there are a few versions of what happened next. One version says that Romulus became so angry, he killed his brother on the spot. And another says that it was a man named Fabius, one of Romulus's best friends, who whacked Remus on the head with a spade. Another says it was a construction foreman named Keller. Another version says he just plain old died of a heart attack, which, uh, as you well know, uh, can be brought on by clogged arteries and 33 completely natural stab wounds. And you didn't see nothing. Romulus, grief-stricken, buried his brother on the Aventine. That was, after all, the, the hill that Remus wanted. And then he set out finishing the outlines of his walls. He plowed that ditch in the line that the wall would follow, while his comrades followed behind him, pushing all the upturned earth up to the interior part of the ditch, or in other words, on the city side of the ditch. They left the ground unturned over the locations of gates. These gates were considered sacred and should not have been defiled by the plow, according to our ancient sources. When the settlement was built, Rhymeless drafted all able-bodied men into the new army. He then laid out the foundation for the social divides of Rome that would be in place for generations. I'm actually going to stop at this point, and we're going to save the ins and outs of his rule over the new city for the next recording. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, a lot of different topics that, that come up as he laid out his rule. Um, let's, though, talk about the story itself up to this point. Theodore Mommsen was one of the giants of Roman studies. Uh, if you've seriously read Roman history for any length of time, you've probably heard of him. And if you are interested in reading more on Roman history, you should become familiar with his name. He's, he's pretty important. He didn't believe that the story was an accurate portrayal of history, but that the elements of the story represented historical fact. In other words, we can look at the story itself to get the Cliff's notes, if not the real nitty-gritty details of what happened. We'll have some basic ideas of Hellenistic migration into central Italy. There's no surprise there. Uh, the Greeks were all over the ancient Mediterranean like a cheap suit. Was it Aeneas and a bunch of Trojans fleeing the greatest war in the history of, of the early Greek world? Probably not, but if we strip away all the fancy bangles and baubles, what are we left with? The migration of Hellenized peoples to Italy. Whereas Plutarch and Livy relate a sordid tale of sibling, uh, sibling rivalry and rape and regicide, all of which will come into play during a discussion in the reign of Romulus and his successors, modern scholars following the Momsen rule would simply use terms like dynastic struggles and political upheaval. Modern biblical scholars do something similar when they attempt to explain things like the, the plagues of Egypt through naturalist means, when they, in fact, usually end up missing the point by a country mile. Scholars of Roman studies sometimes run the risk of doing the same. We can use archaeology, linguistic studies, uh, comparative mythology, and so on and so forth, and we can try to hypothesize what really happened, but that wouldn't help us understand the Roman mind and their worldview. To them, their version was the reality, and that's why taking the Romans' word for this to some extent is okay if we want to learn about the Romans themselves. Let me illustrate this concept through the joys of 1970s television. Uh, let's look at two examples. You remember Happy Days, don't you? The Fonzie, Mr. Mississippi, Car Hops, and Rockin' Around the Clock, right? Okay. Well, and it was totally representative of the 1950s, where nobody swore, all good kids were straight-laced, and jukebox repair could be performed with a simple pounding of the fist by a motorcycle-riding, shark-jumping punk with a heart of gold. Sure, that's an accurate portrayal of American culture in those days, right? Right? Well, obviously not. 
but you can learn a lot about a culture by the backstory that they tell about themselves. Remember, uh, Happy Days took place in the 50s, but it was made in the 70s. The way we want to remember the 1950s tells us something about our own values rather than the actual history of the era. And do you remember the, that uh, opening theme song from All in the Family? You know the one. It's where Archie and the Dingbat are sitting there at the piano remembering the good old days where goyles were goyles, men were men, everybody pulled his weight, and gee, our old LaSalle ran great. Well, did their old LaSalle run great? Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, LaSalle made a good car, but more importantly, the Bunkers remembered it well. And if you want to understand Archie Bunker, don't listen to Meathead. Listen to the nostalgia for a bygone era, even if you have to remind yourself from time to time that the memory is a little bit of a sham. Because so much of Roman history prior to the 4th century BC was lost, remember that, the hell of a bonfire I mentioned, how the Romans remembered their history is very important. And while the modern historian is loath to repeat unsubstantiated rumors and myths, in this case, we must if we want to understand Roman history. In the second part of this discussion, we'll talk about Romulus as a ruler, which will help to illustrate this point. We're going to see that the quote-unquote history of Rome at this point is more about Roman self-image than it is the actual modern concept of history. I'm Paul Stetzel. Thanks for listening.